1 through 12. Since we have Lord's Supper this afternoon, we are going to study the Catechism this morning and Lord's Day 6. Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll turn there in our Forms and Prayers book in a moment and then we'll recite together those answers, uh, all the answers of Lord's Day 6. But first from Acts 4. You remember that in Acts 3, uh, Peter and um, John were coming into the temple courts and they see the lame man and he asks for alms and they say, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I thee. We remember that song, of course, that we were taught by our mothers. And he came leaping and walking and leaping and praising God into the temple. And then they were preaching the good news of the gospel in Solomon's portico. And as they were speaking, this is where chapter 4 at verse 1 starts, as they were speaking, let's ask the Lord for a blessing upon this word as we hear it together this morning. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Father, the word of God is about to be spoken to us, even as it was spoken on the days of Peter and John's standing before the Sanhedrin so long ago. Lord, that word is a powerful two-edged sword. We know that there are those that hear that word and are not moved by it, even as we will read in our text today. May that not be true for any of us, Lord. May it speak a word to our hearts that opens us up to the wonder of Your grace and moves us to the joy of salvation. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had them set in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And it's especially that last verse that carries into our Lord's Day 6 Study, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thus, for the reading of God's holy word, let's turn to Lord's Day 6, page 206, 207. In our forms and prayers books, we're going to recite together the answers, the four answers to these questions. Lord's Day 6, page 206, 207. Keep in mind what we've seen in Lord's Day 5. This is the first Lord's Day. That was the first Lord's Day of the deliverance. We're into the deliverance section of the catechism. And we continue in Lord's Day 6. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? 
Because God's justice requires that human nature which has sinned must pay for its sin, but a sinner could never pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Then who is this mediator? True God and at the same time a true and righteous man. Our Lord Jesus Christ who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. And how do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me God Himself began to reveal the Gospel already in paradise Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally he fulfilled it through his own beloved Son. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, there are many things in this life that we are given that we don't value, that we don't appreciate. Today's Mother's Day, and it's probably worth acknowledging that we don't appreciate our mothers quite as often as we ought. Hopefully today we do. Hopefully today maybe we made something at school this week that we get to give to mom. Maybe we've got a card to thank her for the many things that she's done or As our family this morning did, there's all these WhatsApp messages to the moms of our families expressing appreciation for the things they do, and that's right and good. But maybe this week, maybe next week, maybe in six months from now, we'll again maybe get frustrated with mom or or think that she doesn't know what she's talking about or, or maybe in some way undervalue, misvalue our mothers, not see them for who they are, the great gift of God to us, A gift that He has given and purchased for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember that every good gift comes from heaven from the Father who overflows in goodness towards us. And our mothers are a gift that God has given to us that we should value and appreciate. But the only reason we've been given this gift, and this is also key, is because Jesus died on the cross. The greatest gift of all. And just like we can misvalue, undervalue, Even as we can sometimes overlook the blessing of our mothers, we can do the same thing with Jesus Christ. We can hear the Gospel, hear the good news of the Gospel, and miss it. Miss it because it wasn't presented in quite the right way or wasn't compelling enough or didn't say the right thing. Maybe we're listening to a podcast or a message in another church or or maybe it's something on the radio and the Gospel comes forth and we just miss it. It doesn't penetrate our hearts. I think the authors of the Catechism understood something of that human nature, which is why in Lord's Day 6 they almost repeat exactly what Lord's Day 5 is about. We don't like repetition in the church, but the Catechism and the Word of God really does. Repetition, the Lord understands, is the mother of learning. And the Catechism repeats itself in Lord's Day 6. After having said in Lord's Day 5 already that 
the Savior must be, what did the Lord's Day 5 say again? That we can't make or that God's justice must be satisfied. We can't satisfy that justice and no other mere creature can satisfy that justice. So we need a Savior who's true and righteous man and more powerful than all creatures, one who's true God. What's the very next question then in Lord's Day 6? Why must he be righteous? Why must he be a true man? Because God's justice requires it, says the Catechism. I just told you that. It's like our mothers, isn't it? Our mothers repeat themselves to us. They don't like to, but they do it because they say, it's important that you understand this. I already told you this. God's justice requires it, says the Catechism. But why must he be true God? Because no creature can bear the wrath of God. I told you this already. I explained this to you once. We are told repeatedly, even as our mothers teach us repeatedly, of why it is that Jesus is the only hope of salvation. Indeed, Lord's Day 5, or Lord's Day 6, you might say, is an anticipated response from us as the students, as the children, as those learning in the classroom, having heard Lord's Day 5, maybe we tuned out a bit, or maybe we didn't pay any attention to it, And the teacher says, this is so very important. Our mother says, this is so very important. That I want to drill it into your brain. I want this to be deep with inside of you. You need to know this is the only hope you have. And and our mothers, our teachers, our catechism and scripture do this because they know something about our human nature. Know something about what it means to be a child. Knows what it means to be somebody in this fallen world distracted by all of the things of life. Man has been distracted for a very long time. The history of religion teaches this because religion, any religion in this world, seeks to answer the questions, the fundamental questions of Lord's Day 5 and 6. You can take these questions and apply them to any religious system. Essentially, the question is, how do we get saved? How do we escape all of this? How do we deal with the problem of God's judgment against us? Every religion strives to answer that for you. Every religion wants to say to its followers, here's the solution to life's great problem. Now, they may answer that question by shifting the focus. Many religions do not accept that God's justice is the central issue of life. Instead, they say, well, you know, our being flawed is the central issue of life or our being subject to inappropriate, inordinate, unfortunate influences. The problem is society. The problem is culture, civilization, its families, its Judeo-Christian rules. The problem is the nature of reality that we've been lied to by our teachers about what is real. That covers almost every false religion in this world. Or they tell us that the weight of sin is not that heavy, that you can lift it yourself, that if you're just good enough, if you work hard enough, if you try enough, you too can save yourself. Every religion offers a different answer to the problem of life, but they're all trying to answer the same problem. And as we go out into this world and as we move within all of these various strains of religion, they have their effect on us. They shape our thinking. They affect our hearts. They affect our attitudes. 
And we regularly and routinely need to be reminded by our mothers, by our church mother. You remember that Calvin said that if anyone would call God Father, he must call the church his mother. Our mothers, our church mother, our mothers at home, our mothers need to remind us that we're not the answer to the problems of life. That our abilities are not worth relying on. That we need a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now for many people, and even increasingly within our own fellowship, this is the very problem with the Gospel. This is the very reason why people want to take a step back from Christianity and go off in another direction. This is too steep a hill, too dark a doorway to enter. Because it's a talk of our inability, of our failures and our sinfulness, and that's humbling and hard and feels destructive and cruel. Especially in the culture in which we are living. A culture that, ext- that extols, that places the happiness of the individual at the supreme place of life. You need to understand that you live in a world, and this is maybe especially a word to parents, but also to our covenant youth who are scrolling on their phones, who are hearing their their environment, watching the movies, listening to the music of our world, which is all telling you that you being happy is the most important thing there can possibly be. That the problem of life is you're not happy. You hear that, don't you, in, in, in divorces. Why should I stay married and be unhappy when I can be divorced and happy? We hear that in our own congregation from people in marriages. You hear that in, in, in homes. You hear that with children as they, as they get to a certain age and they, and they say, well, I don't like, I'm not happy with my parents. They don't make me happy. We hear that within the context of our society, don't we? That, that people need to be self-fulfilled. They need to be able to be themselves. They need to be happy. Everything's about being happy. That's the idol our world currently worships at. And anything that makes people feel bad, anything that offends people, and And again, this is not a word to just the culture around us. I tell you what, in our own midst, we do things, we don't do things, because we don't want to offend people. Because offending people, we understand, even the consistory understands, that is the greatest sin to commit today. In a world where happiness is king, offending people is the only thing you cannot do. That's wicked and sinful. And now we come into the church and we again hear in Lord's Day 6 the call to agree with God's description of us to personally internalize and accept what the water of baptism just said to Rose. Because it said some wonderful things. But it first said, Rose, you can't do it. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not able to accomplish what you need to accomplish. You can't free yourself from the brokenness of this life. It leaves us exposed. It leaves us naked and humiliated. It makes us afraid and in danger of mistreatment and abuse. It makes us feel guilty. It makes us feel small. And it's something we're inclined to say, no, thank you, I will take a pass on this. 
But we need to hear this glorious truth so that we can see the majesty of Jesus Christ. For recognize that since, and this is what the Bible says, since there is only one hope, since man is so utterly lost, since you and I, since Rose is so utterly lost, that not her parents' love, not her grandparents' love, not the church's love, not Christian education, not anything we do can possibly penetrate to the depths of her heart and work salvation for us. For her, the only hope she has, the only hope Alan and Michelle have, the only hope we have, is that God would do something. God would do something. And what he'd have to do in order for Rose to be saved, in order for any of us to be saved, it's unthinkable. God would have to come in the flesh. Can you imagine that? Have you ever heard of such a thing? God would have to come in the flesh. He'd have to die on a cross. He'd have to rise on the third day, sit at his Father's right hand right now, interceding for us. All of that would have to happen for any of the comfort of the water of baptism to belong to Rose, to belong to any of us, to belong to us as believers. And that's exactly what God did. We know that that's what God did. But stop for a moment again and think of it. There is no religion like this. There is no God. Who is a God like our God? Who has done what our God has done? No mind has conceived. No eye has seen what God has done for those who love Him. Can you find a God so deep in love with His people, so complete in His sacrificial service to His people that He sent His only begotten Son that He should die under the awful weight of our sin that we might be counted as righteous before His face leaving us nothing to do except praise Him. Come to church on Sunday and worship. That's all He asks. Worship Him. Glorify Him. Praise Him. Praise Him in your home. Praise Him in your marriage. Praise Him in your work. Praise Him in your office. Praise Him in your parenting. Praise Him in your quiet time. Praise Him in worship. Praise Him with great praise. That's it. Because He's done it all. It's a glorious, magnificent, amazing message of hope and promise and power. Our God is nothing like those who reject Him believe Him to be. He is endlessly kind. He is gloriously good and He is majestically merciful. We are so wicked and so broken. But He has entered into our darkness and He has called our name and He has claimed us for Himself that we might enter into His eternal life and enjoy safety and eternity with Him. This is your God who loves you in Jesus Christ. How can your hearts not be unmoved? How can we, f- not, how can we uh, be afraid of this God inappropriately? And how can we hesitate to ever admit our need of this grace? And how can we ever doubt His love? Every Sunday we come back and we hear again the good news of the Gospel. We see again the water of baptism, the Lord's Supper each month. And God says again to us, all of those false gods, all of that false ideas, all of those ways that you think will bring you happiness and won't, they are folly. But come and rest in what I have done and rejoice in my grace towards you. That's what Lord's Day Day 6 is teaching us again.
It's saying to us again, I know that you get distracted. I know that you don't always understand this. I know that in the world in which you live, you get turned around. So let me say it to you again. It's our mothers who, when something's very important, remind us again. We maybe don't like it. Maybe we're going out for the night and mom says, drive carefully. Yeah, yeah, mom. No, no, drive carefully. Why? Because she knows how important that is. She knows how important safety is. And she wants us to be safe. Well, here the mother of our faith, the church, through its catechism, says to us, I know you've heard this before. I know you're tired of hearing it so many times, but let me say it to you again. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. But of course, even as we hear that again, and even as we hear that in the culture in which we live, some of us may be thinking, wait a second, how do you know? How do you know? That's one of the ways in which the world does war with us. It tries to undermine our confidence in Jesus Christ. It wants to say to us, either Jesus is no different. Sometimes you hear that. I've heard that again recently. This idea that that really Christianity is the cobbling together of all these other religions. There used to be however many religions in the world. There's really, you know, four or five, six maybe now main religions and that sort of thing. There used to be, you know, hundreds and they they all had a bit, all had a little bit of, this one had a son that came, a God that came in the flesh and this one had a a virgin that conceived and bore a son and, and this one had a crucified. And what Christianity did is it cobbled it all together, took all these bits and pieces and put it all together in a lovely form. Or maybe you think to yourself, wait a second, how do I know that Jesus is Lord? I, I was just told that by my mom. I've always been told that Jesus is Lord. And, and that's a wonderful thing when mothers teach their children the things of the faith and school them in the truths of God's Word. But sometimes we get to a certain age, 17, 18, 20, 20, and we go, it's the only reason I believe in Jesus because mom and dad told me to? Because they took me to church and sent me to catechism and kingdom seekers and cadets and all the rest? And sometimes we begin to doubt because that's what the world wants us to do. It wants us to doubt. How do we know? How do we know that Jesus is the only way, the only hope, and the only life? The Catechism answers that question for us. It says, well, let me take you from the very beginning of time through all of the many ways in which God has revealed His saving work in Jesus Christ. It's revealed in paradise, Genesis 3.15. It's revealed by the holy patriarchs. Genesis 17, 2 Samuel 7, it's revealed by the prophets, Micah 5 verse 2, a baby will be born in Bethlehem, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 11. These are just the obvious ones. These are the ones you can call out of, the, out of thin air. But think, about, think about all of the ones that are maybe a little more interesting. Think of Mrs. Manoah. You remember her? Samson's mom. There's a Christmas message right there. Think about Hannah. We've been studying 1 Samuel. Hannah, there's a Christmas message there. Think about Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, that talks about being cursed is he who dies upon a tree. Think about Isaiah 53 and the mocking and the ridicule that he endures. Indeed, we can go through the entire Old Testament and discover that on every page is revealed the person and work of Jesus Christ, even as Jesus did to those two brothers on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verse 27. 
Which is all to say that the Bible is full of the revelation that the only one who can save us is this son born of a woman born under the law who comes to deliver us from the curse of the law by his perfect, his spotless lamb sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And there's a good reason for why that is. There's a very good reason for why it is the Word of God who tells us these things and why it is the Word of God convicts us of these things. And that is because only God in the end can tell us who the Savior is. Think of it. God is the only one who can save. If God chooses not to save, then none of us are saved. But if God chooses to save, then then there's hope and there is promise. But, But if God chooses to save, how will we know? How will we know who it is that He has put His blessing upon? How will we know? Think of all of the various saviors that the world offers to us. Think of of Mohammed. Think of the various gods of the Hindus. Think of the Buddha. All of these characters stand before us and they're all in their religions identified as the way of salvation. Listen to this one. This one will save you. And we can get confused and we can get lost in all of the details. They all sound so very compelling. They all sound so very convincing. How do you know which one is the right one? How do you know that that the Buddhist is wrong but the Hindu is right or the Hindu is wrong and the Muslim is right or that the Muslim is wrong and the Christian is right? The answer is not up to us, is it? That that would be a terrible way to discover the truth of these things, wouldn't it? That would be an awful way to have to handle this sort of thing. Is What do we do? Take a vote? Do we, do we survey the world and see which one is the right God? Do we see which one's the most ancient? Do we see which one's the most followed? How do we, how do we know who is the right Savior? The answer can only be that, that the one who God identifies. God is the one who alone can save, remember? God is the one whose justice must be satisfied. Was he satisfied with Buddha's teaching? Was he satisfied with Muhammad's teaching? Was he satisfied with anyone's teaching besides Jesus Christ? Just think of those times. That is baptism. The Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Think of how the Lord confirmed for us the messianic work of the Messiah through the many miracles that Jesus accomplished. Think of all of the witnesses to His resurrection. Think of all what the Word of God says and is fulfilled. Remember, Moses taught us that the simplest way to test the truth of a prophecy is by its fulfillment. If someone says something and it comes about, that man has spoken the Word of God. If someone says something and it doesn't come about, that man has not come to you from God. It's a simple test, isn't it? So let's apply it to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say will happen? From the very first, it says a son will be born. A perfect son. A man will be born who is the Son of God as well. And he will die upon a cross and rise on the third day. He will be buried among the rich, says Isaiah. No one understood what that passage meant until Nicodemus took Jesus' body and put it in the tomb. The prophecy was fulfilled. The prophecy is being fulfilled even to this day. The faithfulness of God is on display all around us. The faithfulness of God is being revealed to us right now in the proclamation of His Word. God tells us. He sends preachers 
to show us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So that our confidence is not in a preacher, not in a parent, it's not in a teacher, but is in the God who has revealed these things. That's what Lord's Day 6 wants us to know. It wants us to be absolutely certain that what we believe concerning Jesus Christ is not made up. It's not a personal idea that we we have developed out of our own. It's not something the church cobbled together. It is the very revelation of God to you. Hear the voice of your God, for He says, Jesus Christ alone saves. He speaks to us, does He not? He speaks to us those powerful and glorious words. That there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Lord's Day 6 repeats for us the very precious and powerful truth of the Gospel. And it does it because it knows that we have a problem. We undervalue things. We get used to things. We treat things as ordinary. Our moms too often are treated as ordinary. Their instruction, their teaching for us, be careful, we don't always listen to, to our harm and detriment. We can do the same thing with the gospel. We can do the same thing with the water of baptism. We can see it and not be moved by it. We can hear the words but not answer them by faith. We can hear the revelation. We can see the revelation. Think of Paul's words, remember in Galatians 3 when he talked about the glory of Jesus Christ, the the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as being presented, billboarded before the congregation there through the preaching of the Word. He says, I showed you Jesus in the proclamation of His Word. We can hear it. We can see it. We can be taught it from our earliest days and we can dismiss it. The catechism knows that. We know that. And that's why we need to so very routinely come back into God's presence come back and sit on our mother's lap our mother the church we need to hear the water of baptism spoken we need to hear the message of salvation spoken we need to see the Lord's Supper presented and we need to be brought again to see that there is no greater gift than this there is no greater blessing that any man can know than this that those who have this have infinitely more than anyone else will ever have So that even the poorest, Lazarus being licked by the dogs, is richer than the man outside of whose house he lay. For he had Jesus Christ. The gift of life, the promise of salvation, the power of God's love. So let us today again, as we're reminding ourselves of how valuable our mother is, let's listen to what she's taught us. She taught us to trust in Jesus Christ as the only way, the truth, and the life. Let's answer the call by faith. Let's ask the Lord for blessing in that through prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful for your word and grateful for its reminder, its reminder of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, we, we need your word. We need to be in your word. We need to be routinely and regularly confronted by those glorious truths that the Holy Gospel communicates, which you communicate already in paradise, proclaiming it through the holy patriarchs and prophets, foreshadowing it by the sacrifices and ceremonies of law, and finally fulfilling it through your own beloved Son. 
Lord, may we each and every one of us today again be convinced. We who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, may we say, I know I have not misplaced my faith. The world may come against me, may want to cause doubt in my hearts, but this I know, that Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Lord, for those among us who are doubting, those among us maybe who are denying Jesus Christ, may we be confronted and convicted again, for this is a faith that rests not upon the testimony of men, but on the very Word of the living God, the Word made flesh, and dwelt among us. And may we repent of our unbelief and renew our trust in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Then our song of response.